All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome, and if you uh, need one of our handouts, which are new for this morning, you can pick up one of those if you don't have one already. Uh, if anybody wants to hand any of those out and just grab a few, that would be great as well. But they are in the back on both sides. They should say class four at the top. Class four. Let's go ahead as we begin this morning and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you that we can come together this morning and talk about how we might live a life that pleases you in terms of the decisions that we make. And we know that so many decisions are made daily and things that have ramifications in a lot of ways. We pray that you'd give us wisdom as we decide what to do at every given moment. We pray that you would help us to be wise according to your word, that we would adequately and accurately consider the factors that you would have us to consider. We pray that you would give us grace to understand and to align our thinking with what your word has said. We pray that you would be honored by the fruit that this time produces. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to talk this morning uh, about decision-making and the conscience. Decision-making and the conscience. Um, When we talk about the conscience, just to begin, what are we talking about when we think about the conscience? What do we mean by conscience? Someone give me uh, some sort of loose definitions of what the conscience is. What do you think of? What does it do? And so on. What is our conscience? Yep. Okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So it's what's in your head is right and wrong. So when you do something... It's, okay, yeah, it's there. It's the voice. Yeah, so, uh, so you got one of those, one of the voices in your head. Anybody else got a voice? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, not that kind of voice. Um, okay. Yeah, good. What else? How would we define the conscience? Yeah, Bridget. Yeah, yeah. So the conscience is, uh, it's, it is a, it's a right and wrong kind of thing, but it is not something that everybody has the same of. It's given from God, uh, but it doesn't necessarily align with Scripture exactly the way that it should. Uh, it doesn't necessarily align with what God wants. Of course, it would be our goal as believers to inform our conscience and align it as precisely as we can with the word of God. This is where we want it to be. We want the conscience to line up exactly with what God has said is right and wrong. Because if the conscience is telling us this is right or this is wrong, then we want that to line up with God's standard of right and wrong, not some standard of our own making or the standard of the culture. 
So yeah, sometimes there are people that because their information is different, because what they believe or their basis for morality is different than the Bible, then their conscience is just going to line up in a different place. Uh, but there's other people who, as Bridget mentioned, they may uh, have believed for a time that certain things were right or wrong, but by virtue of uh, violating that conscience, their conscience can become seared over time, and it's as if it has no feeling or no, no life in it, um, maybe in that particular area, but also with effects that can go out from there. First Timothy 4 talks about uh, liars whose consciences are seared as with a branding iron. Uh, that it's like it's just been taken and there's no feeling anymore in that particular element. So uh, you have people who maybe just get used to sinning in certain ways and no longer feel bad about it. No longer does this come to mind anymore. They just like put it out of their minds like they stick their fingers in their ears and they don't care anymore. Uh, which would account for sin progressing from worse to worse in individual people in particular as their conscience is seared over time. Uh, yeah, anything else on the conscience and how you would define what it is? What are the elements involved in the conscience? Okay, well, I would just simply say that the conscience, uh, if we want to put it one way, is the faculty of the inner man that alerts you or permits, uh, or permits you uh, when you're thinking about doing something that you believe has a moral element to it, or when you have done something that you believe has a moral element to it. But it's simply a faculty, it's a God-given faculty in the inner man. It alerts you or it permits you uh, when you're thinking about doing something that you believe has a moral element to it. Uh, Romans chapter 2 says that on the day of uh, judgment, people's conscience are going to bear witness. Uh, their thoughts, Romans 2.15 alternately accuse or else defend them. Uh, everybody has a conscience. This is a passage not about Jews, but about people without the law. And he says that basically Gentiles, all the nations, uh, even though they don't have the law of God, do a lot of the things that align with the law, which is a testimony that God has written a basic moral stamp upon their heart. Uh, where their conscience diverges from that is the result of a lot of different things. Uh, sinning against that conscience, denying God, changing a view of God, having different moral uh, prescriptions made up or that they follow, different things that they have learned. And so it can, over time, deviate from that. And that, of course, can even be, um, uh, in, in, can be imprinted upon their conscience from a very young age. But nonetheless, there is this basic idea that people know there is such a thing as right and wrong. And many of the things that, we, uh, that, that are shown in societies around the world and nations around the world uh, throughout the course of history demonstrate that there are just certain things that are right and wrong. And people know this. So the conscience is something we all have. It's something that uh, alerts us or it's something that excuses us uh, in the right kind of sense. It can permit us to do things. It can tell us, nope, you're good to go. Uh, this is not wrong. It makes you think that this is okay. And so it's important that we have it aligned with Scripture. Uh, so the question then is, when we come to decision-making, uh, oftentimes there is a category of decision-making that people refer to as, quote, conscience matters, conscience matters. And they connect these decisions with matters of the conscience, matters that have to do with this faculty that is in the inner man that tells us something is right or wrong. Um, why do people call things conscience matters? Why has this terminology 
taken root when it comes to such decisions that are not necessarily decisions that are um, uh, so much the moral explicit things like don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, Ten Commandment type of stuff. Why has this term taken, uh, taken root for matters that go beyond the direct moral commands of Scripture? Well, largely, this is because there are a couple of key passages that deal with decisions where people do have disagreements, where they will act differently, and they, they do have, uh, there are even disputed matters of various kinds, such that people have different practices, and these passages, both of them, are uh, connected with the conscience in Scripture. So the two passages that are here, uh, you should see this on your handout, two passages about conscience matters are Romans 14, verse 1 through really uh, chapter 15, verse 7 is about the best place to, to end uh, that, that section. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10, Romans 14, 1 through 15, 7, and 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Again, these are passages where there are Christians who take different paths with regards to particular matters that the Apostle Paul brings up. And in both places, the conscience is a major player. So it has come to be the case that when we talk about matters where there is disagreement on uh, people practicing certain things or doing things that go beyond the, the, uh, the most clear, direct, moral, fundamental statements of the Bible, uh, then there are disagreements and these are then connected with the conscience. So I want to talk about that because I think that uh, we need to be careful in just assigning these things strictly as what we call conscience matters. And I want to think about some of the effects of doing that. But before we get into that and, and see what happens if we're not careful with this terminology, I do want to look at these two passages and see uh, some of the principles that we can use for making decisions where the conscience or differences of conscience are involved. So Romans 14, if you want to turn there. Uh, Romans 14. I'm going to try to do something of a, uh, a, just a survey of these two sections in Romans and 1 Corinthians. Uh, Romans 14, starting in verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. That is not a, uh, an attack on the vegan diet in favor of a carnivore diet or something like that. Uh, this is something that's about the religious practices, certain meats that could not be eaten according to ceremonial laws, and there were people in the church in Rome who were kind of hanging on to, uh, to these qualms about doing this, even though having become Christians, they were free to eat these things. And there was no prescription against them for the Christians. So the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Uh, this is a passage that is really all about believers who are not on the same page with regard to the exact level of their functional freedom in Christ, nonetheless being unified with one another for a number of principles that he lays out. Uh, the end of this passage is the same as the beginning where he talks about accepting one another. So 14.1, accept the one who is weak in faith. 15.7, therefore accept one another. Just as Christ also accepted us 
to the glory of God. Uh, There are two fundamental ways to deal with people who have disagreements on these kinds of matters where their conscience might uh, might have more qualms than yours or your conscience may have more qualms than theirs about a particular issue. You can either uh, reject them and not care about them and really think of yourself as more important in a lot of ways or you can accept them and receive them and welcome them and not treat them poorly on the basis of having this differing opinion. Um, there are a lot of ways where we might treat someone else poorly that Paul lays out here. Uh, verse 3 talks about this. The one who eats, that is the one who doesn't have this problem where their conscience thinks that it's wrong to do this. Uh, they're not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. They're not supposed to look down on them. And they're not supposed to say, well, this person won't do this. I'm better than they are. And the one who doesn't eat, that is the one who has this stronger conviction about this particular thing, is not to judge the one who eats. The one who uh, is more uh, willing to exercise or perhaps even more able because of his conscience freedom uh, to actually carry out this practice. So the one who does not eat, the one who abstains from this, is not to judge. He's not to pass judgment on the one who eats. He goes into a lot of reasons why this is the case. Uh, God has accepted him, verse 3, so he's been accepted by God. You're not the judge of him, verse 4. God is, who are you to judge the servant of another to his own master? He stands or falls, for, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Um, we are uh, talking about, he goes on to talk about uh, how we live for Christ, and we are not living for um, we, our brother's approval in this direct sense. We live for the Lord, and it is Christ who is the Lord of all. Verse 9, to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And so the things that we practice, we are accountable ultimately to God for, and we are not in the place of passing judgment on someone else. Now, the obvious caveat that always comes with that is that we in the church, when someone else is actually sinning, are supposed to address that person, are supposed to bring that up to that person, are supposed to rebuke where there is sin, and are supposed to judge someone, that exact word, uh, when they will not repent of their sin. And Paul uh, chastises the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5 because they will not judge the immoral so-called brother. So there is a place for judgment when someone is actually sinning. But here, this is referring to matters that are above and beyond what scripture requires of all believers. And they're just convictions that an individual believer has in his own conscience. And he says, you're not to judge someone else because they're not holding to the same standard that you personally adhere to. On the other side of things, uh, we're supposed to make sure we don't lay down a stumbling block for a brother. So when someone else has a weaker conscience and they are more... uh, they're more uh, tempted to, uh, it's not more tempted, they are, uh, they're going to violate their conscience if they do a particular thing that we do. We're supposed to be careful that we don't put a stumbling block in their way. Verse 13, therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So there are people who believe something to be unclean. They believe something is not permitted by God, and they are unable to eat that. It goes above and beyond what's required of the Christian, but they have this hang-up with it, and they say, I can't do that. And so functionally, 
uh, for that person to go through with that before God would be to do something that would be wrong. And therefore, if we are uh, aware of this, we should be careful that we don't cause them to go into that. Um, This is the idea of causing someone to stumble. In verse 15, it says, if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. We're going to talk about that principle more in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. Excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, So then, the rest of the chapter, largely he's saying that we're not supposed to prioritize things that ultimately are less important than God's work in other believers and in the church. Food and these other matters of freedom that we have are not the ultimate things. And the more important thing is the souls of the people around us. Um, The things that God is doing So he says, verse 15, the end, don't destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Verse 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Which one is more important? The spiritual work that's going on. Uh, So verse 19, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Okay, so I mean, there are a number of other statements along those lines there, but that's the gist of it is that you are not supposed to say, well, the most important thing is for me to exercise my freedom. Now, we'll talk about uh, those things a little bit more in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, but I think it's important for us to understand something here, which is that Paul refers to certain personal persuasions in the conscience as weaker faith. Weaker faith. Notice, he does not call them stronger faith. He does not call stronger convictions about something stronger faith. And this is a very, very important thing for us to understand when we're dealing with matters of the conscience, matters of differences of judgment and differences of opinion about particular things that go beyond what scripture requires of us in the Christian life. This is a very, very difficult thing sometimes for people to accept. Paul refers to the person who has stronger personal convictions as the one who is weak in faith. And we often think, especially when we are the one in that position, that we are the one with stronger faith. We think that we have stronger faith because we have stronger convictions. But the issue is not that we have stronger convictions and that we adhere to them more strongly in the things that are actually required of us. The issue here is that this person thinks that they are obligated to do more than what God actually obligates them to do. And Paul says that this is actually a weakness in in, uh, grasping onto the word of God and in believing that God has said you're actually free in this matter. Uh, To demonstrate this, there is a passage in Acts 10 on this very issue of food. If you want to turn there, uh, many of you know where this is going, but Acts chapter 10, Peter having been uh, very influential in the spread of the early church, he is in Joppa, and the Gentiles are about to receive the gospel through his hand. He doesn't know this yet. Acts 10.9, on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. 
a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times. And immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Peter comes to find out throughout the course of this uh, encounter as some men from Cornelius come to him and uh, call upon him and say, hey, our master has been told to call to you and to come and preach to him the word of life. So Peter did that. He went to, uh, he went to uh, Cornelius and he preached and Cornelius and his uh, many who were with him believed and it was very clear to him because in that particular case, uh, the spirit of God fell upon those who were listening, Acts 10.44, and uh, the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they began to speak with other tongues. So this was uh, a miraculous work of God demonstrating now the gospel has come to the Gentiles. In Acts 11, Peter explains what is going on in this. And he explains the vision and he connects this with going to the Gentiles. So what has been previously viewed as unclean, namely the Gentiles, are now being pictured as clean. Peter says, he says, you can go. The Lord says you can go and you can do this. Um, here is Peter, though, and there was this time where these, uh, where these animals, these particular things, were unclean to him. He is now told they are no longer unclean, and you have the freedom to actually eat these things. Uh, he is now more free. Peter is now more free than he was before with regard to certain practices that he can have. And he is able to do this. And if he had said and continued with the rest of his life to say, you know, no, I can't eat those things, then this would have been a, a misunderstanding of what God says about that stuff. Now, it wouldn't have been wrong for Peter to continue to, uh, to struggle with it and say, well, no, I, you know, I'm just not sure, I'm not ready, or anything like that. But there is a certain sense in which if, you, if he was unable to actually do this with a clear conscience, that would be a weakness of believing what God had said about that particular matter. Paul doesn't refer in Romans 14 to this weakness as sin. He just refers to it as not being as strong as it could be. So when someone uh, is unable to functionally practice those things and to actually go and to eat them and to, to uh, take hold of that freedom that they have, it is really interesting that Paul refers to this as simply a matter of growth and maturity and not as a matter of doing wrong if they won't eat it. But at the same time, he does say it's, it's uh, not where he would want it to be. And of course, Paul sets the example by saying, for example, in, uh, Romans, or in 1 Corinthians 9, that even though he is a Jew, when he's among the Gentiles, he kind of acts like the Gentiles. And he is very, very free because he has aligned his conscience uh, as exactly as he can with God's word on this particular matter. Okay, all of that to say then, uh, with regard to this being weak, uh, I think we need to be careful in making sure that we put ourselves in the right category when we have what we call a strong conviction about something. 
A lot of times we might have what we call a strong conviction about certain practices. And they can have to do with all kinds of things, whether it is uh, the food you eat, where you buy that food from, the kind of places that you'll spend your money, the kind of businesses that you will support, um, the, uh, the kinds of entertainment that you'll partake in, the school choices that you make, uh, all kinds of stuff. Like everything that, that uh, the things that a lot of times are matters for strong disagreement among Christians, um, a lot of that comes uh, from the side of people who don't care about the other side and they just make their decision without regard to that. That's the other side that we're going to look at. But also a lot of this can come from the fact that we think if we have a strong conviction about something as the best way to do it or as uh, the wisest way to do it, that this is the way that it should be done. And we have a conviction that if we were to do it any other way, it would be sin. And I want to say that I think that that is, generally speaking, a weakness in faith, and it's something we need to be very careful about. It would be better to say something like, this is what we think is the best way to do it by far for us, or this is the best way for me to do this myself. Uh, this is the way that I strongly prefer to do this at this time. This is what I see as the wisest way to do this. But in the absence of a direct command from God's word on this particular matter, I cannot say that I that is something that must be done. Let me talk about in a moment why that's a danger. Um, and so it is easy for a person who is weak in faith to do what he says in Romans 14.3. To judge the one who is not. It's easy for them to say, I just would never do that. You know, I just, I just would never do that. Well, is there a biblical uh, prohibition of what they're doing? No, but, you know, I just have this conviction, and I've developed this, and, you know, the more I've thought about it, okay, well, let's make sure that you can point to the text definitively and build the case for why this is actually wrong and not just a bad idea. Now, you're free to go to someone and say, you know, I think, I think you're uh, making a really bad decision, a really unwise decision. I think that you've not thought this out well, and I think there might be something that's better for you to do. If you have a personal conviction about something being the best and you want to go tell someone else about that, feel free to do that. But be very careful that you don't put it in the realm of right and wrong if it's not right and wrong. And when you haven't sorted that out properly in your own conscience and you have a weak conscience, you're going to be tempted to tell someone else they're doing something wrong when they're really maybe just doing something that you would feel wrong about and may even not be a good idea, but it's not sin. So you got to be careful to parse that out properly. The weaker faith person is tempted to judge the other person and say, if they were really mature, they would not do that thing. I don't do that thing. And if they were really mature, they wouldn't either. Or if they were really mature, they would do the thing that I do, and they would do it the way that I do it. It may be true that the stronger faith person may have other problems with the decision that they're making. They may be displaying a lot of immaturity in their decisions. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing the wrong thing in and of itself. So just be careful when you look down on other people who do things that you won't do or don't do things you feel like you have to do. Uh, when you look at other people and say, I could just never do that. When you say, I just have a conviction and it just comes down to personal conviction and you're tempted to start to look down on other people who do things differently, be very careful on that particular point. All right, we are going to talk about the other side of this, so just hang tight. Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 for a moment. Then I want to take some questions. 1 Corinthians 8, and we can uh, fill in the blanks here. Now, this is more than we're going to go through every verse on, but... Uh, 
There are a number of principles in this passage. You know what? Let's, let me do this. Um, let me ask if there are any questions before we go there, because I'm going to want to, it's going to be a little bit in there. So uh, any questions or other things so far? Yes, Heather. I think it's both yeah because Peter has been yeah he's saying I can't do this right and uh, we find by uh, Galatians 2 that Peter is eating with the Gentiles um, I don't maybe it's too much of a jump to say that he was eating their food but he was in the practice of eating with the Gentiles until certain people came and then he kind of shrunk back because he was afraid of um, people judging him for eating with them and violating that law uh, so, yes, I, I would say it is both. It is clearly representative that God is bringing salvation to a new group of people. Uh, that's the direct, that's the main point of that. But he's doing so by virtue of saying, Peter, you, you don't have to do this. Peter had not been in the practice of doing this, and he's telling him on the spot, like, do this. This is fine. This is clean. Now, the only challenge, I think, like the hardest argument against that particular view that it is talking about the food is that it doesn't actually say that Peter ate then and there. So I do want to acknowledge that. Um, but I still think the fact that he's telling him to do it and it is unclean. Um, and if Peter had actually eaten the food, it wouldn't have been wrong. But he, previously, he clearly thought it was that, that God is making that declaration that this food, you know, you, you think it's one thing, but it actually is another. And Peter came evidently to believe that at some point between then and uh, to change his practice between then and, uh, and what would have been probably before Acts 15, uh, Galatians 2 best as I can put it together. So yeah, in the next few chapters, um, I don't know how many years that would be exactly, but at some point, yeah, Peter did make that change. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yep, he did. So that's a great point. Yes, in the Old Testament, God had said, so if you're under the law of Moses as a Jew who, or as someone who, uh, as a Gentile, had joined himself to Israel and decided to go in with them, uh, yeah, you, those foods were actually sinful at, for a certain group of people at that point. And this is why they had the hang-up with it. They, they still had, not only had they come out of this Jewish background, um, and, but they also, I mean, this is still part of their national heritage and practices and stuff. Um, which, by the way, is why there's a difference between the way that Paul treats someone who is a Jew who continues those practices versus someone who's a Gentile in the book of Galatians who starts those practices. What they're doing is just the remainder of an ongoing conscience and an ongoing practice. Uh, when the Gentiles in Galatia started to eat the foods and practice the days and everything like that, they actually were going back to the law from the gospel and not even back to the law. They had never even been under the law, but they'd been under law type things. Sorry, I'm getting too much in the weeds on that point. Uh, but chapter 4 says you're going back under elemental principles of the world rather than Christ. And he says you're, you are denying the gospel by virtue of thinking you have to have the law, which is of works, instead of the gospel, which is by faith. So when you do these practices, this is, it's a different thing for a Gentile to start to do these things that were the Old Testament requirements. Um, as opposed to a Jew that was just continuing in them as a national practice and something that they had already done and kind of had a conscience, a pre-existing conscience thing about. So, yeah, there, there is a difference. So that, 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 that,
could be on that particular matter, yeah, it, it would be that a Gentile who comes in sort of, you know, blank slate on that. Now, there's other things that we would bring into the picture that we think are right or wrong too, such as the meat sacrifice to idols is the thing that First Corinthians talks about. But yeah, in that particular case, somebody could step in who's never been under the law at all, and this is all new to them, and they're like, yeah, I don't have to do that stuff. The Bible doesn't tell me as a Christian that I have to do those things. And it would be kind of easier in that sense. Um, and people, you know, we, you know how this is when people come up in certain Christian traditions and they think there's certain requirements and rules and things that they have to follow. You can't wear this. You have to wear this. You have to do these things. Um, and they have a harder time maybe than somebody that's just kind of come out of complete uh, non-Christian background at all. And they don't have any issues with not doing certain things that aren't in the Bible because they don't even know those things are uh, an issue anyway. So, yes, the... Part of the reason why this is there is because this is from their Old Testament background. This is, this is what they were uh, kind of hanging on to. And it, it's just interesting how Paul tries to demonstrate, you know, I know that nothing is unclean in itself. Like, that's what he says in, um, in verse 14. I know and I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus, nothing is unclean in itself. He, he, the theological truth is these foods are not unclean for a Christian. They are not. But he doesn't get onto them as if they are doing something they need to repent of. Instead, he says this is something um, that, okay, it's weaker than, it, than I would like it to be. And he even commends getting out of that. And there are functional reasons why it would be better to get out of that. But at the same time, he's, he's patient and he encourages us to be patient with other people with those same convictions. Um, yeah, Philip. Yeah, the difference between a wisdom issue and a conscience issue. Yeah, and so that's actually, that is, that's a lot of where I'm going, but um, I, I, I don't mind even just mentioning this now. I, part of the problem, yeah, so wisdom issue is just making the best decision that we can based upon what we believe to be true. It's, it's all the stuff that we've talked about um, the last few class sessions where we're considering all kinds of things, biblical principles for decision-making, priorities that we have, we're considering the facts of the situation, we're getting counsel and so on. But at the end of the day, a wisdom issue is just we are making the best decision that we can. But we're doing so within the realm of decisions that we say none of these would be sinful in and of themselves. So you can do this, or you, you know, I have five choices before me, or 20, or 1,000, it doesn't matter, of those, I'm trying to choose the wisest. Uh, if these thousand decision possibilities are all permitted by the Bible, then at that point, it really is a wisdom issue. But a lot of times, unfortunately, people become, for a lot of reasons, the conscience gets connected to those. And it gets attached to this one thing or that one thing or something else. I can't do that. I can do this or I must do this. And then it takes it out of the realm of wisdom and it puts it in the realm of the conscience because they really do think that it's right or wrong. And then on top of that, they look at other people or at least they can be tempted to look at other people and they can think because this is now a quote-unquote conscience issue, uh, we're disagreeing about something and we're, this is going to be even more like, um, you know, this, this is about conviction. This is right or wrong. This is stronger. It's not just that, you know, you think it's better to do this and I think it's better to do this and there's not even a moral issue involved in that direct sense. It's that, yeah, we think this is an actual moral issue and it just creates uh, a lot more 
possible landmines uh, for unity and fellowship with one another. And it also, well, I mean, just, so one of the things that this does, I'm going to jump ahead um, on to the very end of this thing, and then we can go back and talk about this. So why we should be careful with calling something a conscience issue. Um, let me see here what I, let me just give you um, one of the reasons for this. Um, when you call something a conscience matter, it, it makes certain things, and even when something becomes a conscience matter, it makes certain things more difficult. Um, one of these is when you, it, it, makes, it makes it more difficult to, um, well, first of all, as I've mentioned, to have fellowship with other people in your church. Because you think they're doing something, you, like you can be tempted to think they're doing something wrong. But they're not doing it wrong, it's just you would feel wrong if you did it. But it's like, I don't know about that person or that group, you know. I'm not sure about that. So you're tempted to do that. Um, it can make it difficult to do what is best or what's wisest for your family or for you. Give me an example of this would be if you really don't like what um, a particular company does with their money that you pay them for their products. You say, I'm going to boycott them. Okay, fair enough. Um, you go on further and you say, I cannot, I cannot buy anything from this company because they take the money that is here and then they use it for this particular matter. Okay, well, in every case, uh, is that the extent that you need to take it? Do you have to take it to the point where you say, it would be wrong for me to spend my money at this company or just I really just don't want to give them my money and I would rather go somewhere else and I don't want to but I do reserve the right that you know if this is the only company that makes this particular life-saving product I think I might want to buy this and I don't like that they would then make the moral decision with the money that's now theirs to go and spend it somewhere else but at least I'm not going to die now it's an extreme example but it hopefully helps you to see that when you turn things into this is, an, this is something I have to do, this is a conscience issue, uh, then you're, you're limiting your options. You're, you're hemming yourself in in ways that don't necessarily have to be there. So just be careful about that. Um, and, and it does, it, it then becomes, these become the issues. It can make obedience to other commands more difficult because you're laying these extra burdens about the way that you have to do things. Uh, so it just, it just creates it. It adds additional layers of obligation to your own life. Um, it can also hinder your ability to preach the gospel. So 1 Corinthians 9, let's, let's go ahead and turn over there and we can uh, look at that passage a little bit. But just at the heart of this, 1 Corinthians 9, uh, in verse 19... Paul says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ 
Why? So that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Foundational statement here is Paul is free from all. Uh, He is free from all men, certainly as the uh, translation here sort of fills in. Um, But he is completely free. He does not have any obligations that go beyond Scripture. He doesn't have to keep the law of Moses. He understands that. To be under Christ, to be in Christ, is to be free from the law. Could not be more clear about this in places like Galatians 3 and 4. Uh, If you are in Christ, you are not under the law. Not under the law. The whole thing as a covenant obligation has been set aside. And uh, he's under a different law, the law of Christ, which is very similar, has a lot of overlap, but it is different. Verse 21, not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Paul is able to use this freedom to not only be with other people, but to also uh, not do certain things that might get in the way of their listening to him. So when he is with those who are without law, he acts as without law. Verse 21, not without a moral law of any kind, but he doesn't walk around with them and you know okay i am uh i'm among the gentiles but you know i have to go and i got to keep my sabbath i've got to practice my feasts and festivals i've got to uh i got to only eat certain foods no paul can walk into here and he can go and if they have this certain kind of food that's forbidden by the law he can eat that he can eat that there would have been a time when he could not have but he can do that He can wear certain kinds of clothes. He can go in certain places. There's a lot of freedom in that. So he says, this freedom I exercise for the sake of winning people to Christ. That's his goal in doing that. Because he's more free, he has more opportunities to do that. Now, there might be some particulars about Paul's situation, being a Jew in the midst of Gentiles, that might um, make this a more significant thing than it is for us today. But maybe there are some opportunities where we get a chance to do things that are beneficial for the sake of the gospel uh, that we might not otherwise if we, because we, uh, because we are free and if we are as free as we can be rightly in our conscience. Let me give you the example of uh, just this, and we'll talk about uh, several angles on this. But ask yourself, um, could you go into a bar if that was the only opportunity that you had to preach the gospel to someone who was in there could you do that in your conscience some of you might not be able to do that in your conscience Um, there's no passage in the bible against that but it might be difficult for some of you to do now the qualifications to that would be many of course wouldn't they number one if you're in there okay are there going to be other christians who have a really hard time uh, coming out of a background of drunkenness and just living it up and things like that related to that. And they're going to be like, oh, he's in there. It's okay for me to go there. Okay. And you might say, well, you know, I do have this opportunity, but for principles we'll talk about in 1 Corinthians 10, I'm not going to go in there. I'm not doing that because I'm caring for my brother. You might yourself be tempted by going in there to get drunk if you uh, have any kind of temptation to that. You might think that it's uh, unwise to go and try to talk to someone in that bar because, you know what, they're already drunk and they're not going to listen to you. And that's just a wisdom judgment call. 
Uh, it might be too loud. You might not have time because you've got some other obligation you've already committed to. It might be really far away from home and you try to persuade him to go to a different place. I don't know. There's all kinds of factors involved. Do you understand this? But, but the question is, do you think it's wrong to go there and to go into that building? And if you do, even though the Bible says nothing about that, if then just acknowledge like this is, an, this is a weak point of faith. Now, the wrong thing to do with this would be to say, all right, well, I'm going to get this together today. I'm just going to go barge into a bar and I'm going to just get this over with. That would not correct your conscience. That would sear your conscience if you don't become convinced by Scripture that this is actually permitted. So you don't want to just rush into that. Although there are times when uh, it, it can be done quickly. I think Acts 10 is an example of that where he's saying you need to change from what you believe about this and kill and eat this. I'm telling you to do this right now. So Peter was to change his persuasion about something, and he wasn't necessarily given a long time frame. He just said, do it. So there's a, there's, it can be done quickly, but don't do it foolishly. And I'm just bringing that up to say this could be an example of something where a lot of us may have uh, qualms about doing something like that. It doesn't mean it's a good idea. If we were to do it, it may or may not be. But the point is, does the Bible say that it's wrong? And if it doesn't, we need to... Uh, recognize that people are free to do that even if we're not. Uh, so it may be a conscience matter for you. Um, for someone else, it is a freedom in their conscience to do this. I think I've run a little bit astray from uh, Philip's original question about distinguishing between those things. Uh, but there are, when, when we, the, the issue of boycotting, hopefully that's uh, something that helps right there, where you're just, where you, you turn something into, instead of like, this is something that I think is the best thing to do, and you turn it into, I must do this this way. Um, it's a wisdom issue. It's a matter of opinion. It's a matter of judgment call, not a matter of judging others, but it's a matter of this is what's best. This is my preference. This is what's prudent. This is what I think is wisest. This is my opinion about this. When you turn that into a conviction, and that conviction has moral elements to it that you must or must not do, then you start to make things a lot more difficult in your own life and interpersonal relationships, both on the Christian level and then also on the gospel level. So, I don't know. Hopefully that uh, answers that to some degree. Yeah. Uh, questions about, about that or anything else while we're here? I know that, uh, that, that may be raising some other issues, but uh, questions, comments? Oh, yes, Jeffrey. Is that a conscious of giving uh, what is holy, casting your pearls before swine, and so on? Gotcha. So, would that particular would preaching the gospel of someone in a bar be that? I think you first would have to say what what is that passage directly referring to? And, and I have to be honest with you on that passage. I still am wrestling with exactly what he is saying by that, other than. Be careful with what is valuable and, and is a treasure and just kind of indiscriminately acting like everyone is the same in terms of their willingness to receive that. Um, so I think that has, uh, as best as I understand it, it would have some 
gospel implications in terms of, you know, your carefulness in preaching the gospel to people, uh, that would be a factor involved. So if you're, okay, you're making a judgment about whether this person is actually, if you think that that, that, that verse, if the, if the correct interpretation of that verse has to do with if you have the word of God and you have this treasure and there are people that, are, um, the, that don't want to hear it and preaching to them would be casting pearls before swine, so to speak, then you would say, okay, if I know that I'm doing that in this case, and if this is a command, then yes, this would be a matter that would be appropriately, we should inform our conscience about and say, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I think the difficulty comes where we have to, first of all, we got to establish that's the correct interpretation. Then we have to say, is this actually a, a swine? You know, am I applying the, in this situation, am I, am I correctly assessing this person as someone who is, unwilling to listen to the gospel or unwilling to who is going to stomp on the treasure that I give to them and I think we ought to be really slow to do that um, especially before we hear their response because you know uh, Jesus himself preached the gospel to a lot of people that just outright rejected it and so did the apostle Paul and and others so I mean Peter you know these, these like they tried to kill these guys for preaching the gospel to them so I think uh, it's really hard to know beforehand whether they're going to believe or not so I would be pretty slow to label someone as, uh, if, if, if the idea is that they are swine because they reject the gospel or because they have kind of a lifestyle or they're unlikely to receive it, I'd be slow to do that and to assess that until long after they've, uh, they've made that clear. Yeah. But, but I think it's a matter for judgment. Like, how long am I going to spend talking to this person who is just not listening to me? You know, they don't want to hear it. Um, I'm, I'm preaching this to them, and it's just clear they don't want to talk about this. They don't want to listen. They just want to talk about whatever. They're not... Okay, that's, yeah, like maybe that's, at that point you say this person is clearly, like they're just not interested. I think that they are, in this case, they're uh, acting like the swine here. Or you just make the call, you know, I've talked to this person for an hour. I'm not going to keep talking to them because there's another person right here next to me. Or I can go over here. And, you know, you have to, so some cases it's a judgment call as well. Like how, how much do I actually do this? So this is where you, you have certain things that are matters of direct biblical prescription. They should be like, I'm not going to do this or I am going to do this because it's wrong. But then you have other things where, okay, I'm going to preach the gospel. I am not going to pre put my pearls before swine. But I'm not sure in this case, and I have to make a judgment about the application of that. So that, that would be the difference. Is that what you're asking about? I mean, is that along those lines? Yeah, if, if, I mean, if you have any follow-up, I can to, to clarify for me. Yeah. Yeah, again, I, I do too. I mean, I'm not, it's... It's not one that I have buckled down and wrestled with uh, how I'd like to. So um, maybe once I've been able to do that, then I would have a better answer on that particular type of case and how it applies to the situation I'm talking about. So, yeah. Yeah, Steve. Yeah, great question. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do, do, we, do we have to know of an individual or do we just kind of think there might be someone? Uh, so I would say it's a both and, but there's going to be a different degree of, it's going to affect your decision differently. So if there's someone that you know and they say, I mean, 1 Corinthians 11 talks about this exact 
point on the individual issue. There is a known conscience issue with a brother that you or that sees you. Um, let me just read this. First uh, Corinthians. 10:24. let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake for the lord is the earth uh, the earth is the lord's and all it contains if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake but if anyone says to you this meat is sacri- this is meat sacrificed to idols don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake i mean not your own conscience but the other man's for why is my freedom judged by another's conscience If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? This addresses both of those issues right here. Because you have someone who actually specifically says, Hey, brother, don't you know this is meat sacrificed to idols? You can tell he's he's concerned about it. He's got an issue. And he's saying, you know, I think you should do this. This is here not the kind of judgment uh, that's there in Romans 14 where you're saying, You do this, you're wrong. There's a concern here. And he says, uh, for the sake of his conscience, not because it's wrong. And if he judges your conscience, verse 29, I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? So if it's a matter of he's saying, you know, you're wrong to do this. And I'm going to judge you if you do. Then say, why? that's not why you would abstain. You do it for the sake of his conscience being weak. And this could cause a problem for him. Like, this, this is wrong. And that can kind of work out in a lot of different ways. Maybe he's just, he's not ready. He, he would be really harmed by you doing this in some way. Um, on that front, you have to be careful that such a person with a weak conscience doesn't hold over you with, the, with a clear conscience on something. Uh, that he has a qualm and therefore no one in the church can do it. Ever. Because then no one would be able to do ever, would ever be able to do anything basically at all. Somebody out there is going to have a conscience problem with something, just statistically speaking. Uh, so it's not that you can hang that over. But here's a direct, immediate, individual concern of somebody that's with you. And you're saying, you know, I, I, I don't have to eat this. What's interesting here, by the way, is that he prioritizes the believer over maybe offending the unbeliever. Do you notice that? Um, the unbeliever invites you. And then you tell him, actually, you know... I, I'm just going to abstain from your food. What do you mean? You might be worried about how that hinders your gospel testimony. The interesting thing is that he prioritizes a brother's conscience over an advantage in evangelism. Very interesting because I think, among other things, it actually is more advantageous in evangelism if you care for your brother and you don't just throw him under the bus for the sake of supposedly winning someone to Christ. That's not the philosophy shared by most of the modern church, but that's a whole other issue. Um, but he does say in verse 25, 6, and 7, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. And if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, that's fine. Do it. You don't have to walk around all the time just completely at the possible objection and possible um, stumbling block that everything might be on every single level. You don't have to say, like, you don't have to never do anything because someone somewhere might have a problem with it. With that said... I think it's wise and loving and caring to be aware and if you think that there is a person who may know about it that could impact them um, perhaps you could talk to them about it ahead of time or something uh, if you think that they're going to be uh, there's going to be a group of people that this could cause you trouble with because they just struggle with it or you could cause them trouble by doing this in the church uh, just keep those in mind and, and, and act accordingly address it with them um, maybe just choose you know this is not worth it 
but don't just carelessly do that. So I think on the, the individual thing, when you know there's an issue, that's going to be a lot more like, okay, I'm not going to do this. Um, at least right now, then we can talk about it later. Then, but on the more group, general, there might be somebody setting, uh, Paul seems to be a little bit more, hey, like, it's, it's fine. Um, but the principles elsewhere will come into play. And we'll talk about more of those um, when we go back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians 8 next time. But yeah, good question, because you can just kind of worry all the time. Someone somewhere might, might do this, and so I can never do anything. It's a good, it's a good kind of direction to be thinking, where you're caring for one another. But uh, it can be crippling in terms of never being able to do anything at all for the hypothetical person that may not even exist or ever be affected by what you do. So you just have to exercise judgment on that, um, governed by love. All right, we should wrap up. Um, if you have other questions, we can talk next week. I'd be happy to talk further uh, individually if you have anything like that that you think may be more appropriate for that setting. Uh, we will come back next week and talk about 1 Corinthians 8 and uh, perhaps some further pitfalls, although we've covered a lot of what's uh, sort of there in the later section of your handout. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the, giving us a conscience. Thank you for cleansing our conscience in Christ through his blood so that we can serve you in that way. Uh, Father, thank you that You've given us these instructions that help us to carefully navigate in ways that prioritize what you prioritize, uh, the care of our brothers and uh, the spread of the gospel and, of course, the glory of your name. Help us not to act selfishly or judgmentally. Help us to trust fully in Christ and at the same time to want to, because we trust in the freedom we have, to want to do exactly what you have said and what most pleases you. God, give us grace this morning to encourage and help one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.